Chapter Twenty Five, Part Two of the Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists by Robert Tressel. Chapter Twenty Five, Part Two. When Philpot had finished eating his dinner, he went out of the kitchen and presently returned with a small pair of steps, which he opened and placed in a corner of the room, with the back of the steps facing the audience. "'There you are, me son,' he exclaimed to Owen. "'There's a pulpit for you.' "'Yes, come on here,' cried Crass, feeling in his waistcoat pocket for the cutting. "'Tell us what's the real cause of poverty.' "'Here, here,' shouted the man on the pail. "'Get up into the bloody pulpit and give us a sermon.' As Owen made no response to the invitations, the crowd began to hoot and groan. "'Come on, man.' whispered Philpot, winking his goggle-eye persuasively at Owen. "'Come on, just for a bit of fun, to pass the time away.' Owen accordingly ascended the steps, much to the secret delight of Crass, and was immediately greeted with a round of enthusiastic applause. "'There you are, you see,' said Philpot, addressing the meeting. "'It's no use booing and threatening, because he's one of them lecturers what can only be managed with kindness. If it hadn't been for me, he wouldn't have agreed to speak at all.' Philpot, having been unanimously elected chairman, proposed by Harlow and seconded by the man on the pail, Owen commenced. Mr. Chairman and gentlemen, unaccustomed as I am to public speaking, it is with some degree of hesitation that I venture to address myself to such a large, distinguished, fashionable, and intelligent-looking audience as that which I have the honour of seeing before me on the present occasion. Applause. One of the finest speakers I ever heard remarked the man on the pail in a loud whisper to the chairman, who motioned him to be silent. Owen continued, "'In some of my previous lectures I have endeavoured to convince you that money is in itself of no value, and of no real use whatever. In this, I am afraid, I have been rather unsuccessful.' "'Not a bit of it, mate,' cried Crass sarcastically. "'We all agrees with it.' "'Ear, ear!' shouted Easton. If a bloke was to come in here now and offer me a quid, I'd refuse it. So would I, said Philpot. Well, whether you agree with me or not, the fact remains. A man might possess so much money that in England he would be comparatively rich, and yet if he went to some country where the cost of living is very high, he would find himself in a condition of poverty. Or one might conceivably be in a place where the necessaries of life could not be bought for money at all. Therefore, it is more conducive to an intelligent understanding of the subject if we say that to be rich consists not necessarily of having much money, but in being able to enjoy an abundance of the things that are made by work, and that poverty consists not merely in being without money, but in being short of the necessaries and comforts of life, or, in other words, in being short of the benefits of civilization, the things that are all without exception produced by work. Whether you agree or not with anything else that I say, you will all admit that this is our condition at the present time. We do not enjoy a full share of the benefits of civilization. We are all in a state of more or less abject poverty. Question! cried Crass, and there were loud murmurs of indignant dissent from several quarters as Owen proceeded. How does it happen that we are so short of the things that are made by work? The reason why we're short of the things that's made by work interrupted Crass, mimicking Owen's manner, is that we ain't got the bloody money to buy em. Yes, said the man on the pail, 
and as I said before, if all the money in the country was shared out equal today according to Owen's ideas, in six months' time it will be all back again in the same hands as it is now. And what are you going to do then? Share again, of course. This answer came derisively from several places at the same instant, and then they all began speaking at once, vying with each other in ridiculing the foolishness of them their socialists, whom they called the sharers out. Barrington was almost the only one who took no part in the conversation. He was seated in his customary place, and, as usual, silently smoking, apparently oblivious to his surroundings. "'I never said anything about sharing out all the money,' said Owen, during a lull in the storm. "'And I don't know of any socialist who advocates anything of the kind. Can any of you tell me the name of someone who proposes to do so?' No one answered, as Owen repeated his inquiry, this time addressing himself directly to Crass, who had been one of the loudest in denouncing and ridiculing the sharers out. Thus cornered, Crass, who knew absolutely nothing about the subject, for a few moments looked rather foolish. Then he began to talk in a very loud voice. "'Why, it's a well-known fact. Everybody knows that's what they wants. But they take bloody good care they don't act up to it theirselves, though.' Look at them there Labour members of Parliament. A lot of buggers what's too bloody lazy to work for their living. What the bloody hell was they before they got there? Only working men, the same as you and me. But they've got the gift of the gab, and— Yes, we knows all about that, said Owen. But what I'm asking you is to tell us who advocates taking all the money in the country and sharing it out equally. And I say that everybody knows that's what they're after, shouted Crass. And you know it as well as I do. A fine thing, he added indignantly. According to that idea, a bloody scavenger or a farm labourer ought to get as much wages as you or me. We can talk about that some other time. What I want to know at present is, what authority have you for saying that socialists believe in sharing out all the money equally amongst all the people? Well, that's what I've always understood they believe in doing, said Crass rather lamely. It's a well-known fact, said several others. "'Come to think of it,' continued Crass, as he drew the obscurer cutting from his waistcoat pocket. "'I've got a little thing here that I've been going to read to you. It's out of the obscurer. I'd forgotten all about it.' Remarking that the print was too small for his own eyes, he passed the slip of paper to Harlow, who read aloud as follows. "'Prove your principles, or look at both sides.' I wish I could open your eyes to the true misery of our condition—injustice, tyranny, and oppression said a discontented hack to a weary-looking cob as they stood side by side in unhired cabs. "'I'd rather have them open to something pleasant, thank you,' replied the cob. "'I am sorry for you. If you could enter into the noble aspirations,' the hack began. "'Talk plain. What would you have?' said the cob, interrupting him. "'What would I have? Why, equality, and share and share alike all over the world,' said the hack. "'You mean that?' said the cob. "'Of course I do. What right have those sleek, pampered hunters and racers to their warm stables and high feed, their grooms and jockeys? It's really heart-sickening to think of it,' replied the hack. "'I don't know, but you may be right,' said the cob. "'And to show I'm in earnest, as no doubt you are, let me have half the good beans you have in your bag, and you shall have half the musty oats and chaff I have in mine. There's nothing like proving one's principles.' Original Parables by Mrs. Prozier. "'There you are!' cried several voices. 
"'What does that mean?' cried Crass triumphantly. "'Why don't you go and share your wages with the chaps that's out of work?' "'What does it mean?' replied Owen contemptuously. "'It means that if the editor of the Obscura put that in his paper as an argument against socialism, either he's of feeble intellect himself, or else he thinks that the majority of his readers are.' That isn't an argument against socialism. It's an argument against the hypocrites who pretend to be Christians, the people who profess to love their neighbours as themselves, who pretend to believe in universal brotherhood, and that they do not love the world or the things of the world, and say that they are merely pilgrims on their way to a better land. As for why I don't do it, why should I? I don't pretend to be a Christian. But you're all Christians. Why don't you do it? We're not talking about religion, exclaimed Crass impatiently. "'Then what are you talking about? "'I never said anything about sharing out or bearing one's brother's burdens. "'I don't profess to give to everyone who asks of me, "'or to give my cloak to the man who took away my coat. "'I have read that Christ taught that his followers must do all these things, "'but as I do not pretend to be one of his followers, I don't do them. "'But you believe in Christianity. "'Why don't you do the things he said?' "'As nobody seemed to know the answer to this question, the lecturer proceeded.' In this matter, the difference between so-called Christians and socialists is this. Christ taught the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of men. Those who today pretend to be Christ's followers hypocritically profess to carry out those teachings now. But they don't. They have arranged a battle of life system instead. The socialist, very much against his will, finds himself in the midst of this horrible battle and he appeals to the other combatants to cease from fighting and to establish a system of brotherly love and mutual helpfulness. But he does not hypocritically pretend to practice brotherly love towards those who will not agree to his appeal, and who compel him to fight with them for his very life. He knows that in this battle he must either fight or go under. Therefore, in self-defence he fights, but all the time he continues his appeal for the cessation of the slaughter. He pleads for the changing system. He advocates cooperation instead of competition. But how can he cooperate with people who insist on competing with him? No individual can practice cooperation by himself. Socialism can only be practiced by the community. That is the meaning of the word. At present, the other members of the community, the Christians, deride and oppose the socialists' appeal. It is these pretended Christians who do not practice what they preach, because all the time they are singing their songs of brotherhood and love, they are fighting with each other, and strangling each other, and trampling each other underfoot in their horrible battle of life. No socialist suggests sharing out money or anything else in the manner you say. And another thing, if you only had a little more sense you might be able to perceive that this stock argument of yours is really an argument against the present system inasmuch as it proves that money is in itself of no use whatever. Supposing all the money was shared out equally, and suppose there was enough of it for everyone to have ten thousand pounds, and suppose they then all thought they were rich and none of them would work, what would they live on? Their money. Could they eat it or drink it or wear it? It wouldn't take them very long to find out that this wonderful money, which under the present system is the most powerful thing in existence, is really of no more use than so much dirt. They would speedily perish, not from lack of money, but from lack of wealth, that is, from lack of things that are made by work. And further, it's quite true that if all the money were distributed equally amongst all the people tomorrow, it would all be up in heaps again in a very short time. 
but that only proves that while the present money system remains it will be impossible to do away with poverty for heaps in some places mean little or nothing in other places therefore while the money system lasts we are bound to have poverty and all the evils it brings in its train oh of course everybody's an idiot except you sneered crass who was beginning to feel rather fogged i rise a point of order said easton and i rise to order a point cried philpot order what the bloody hell you like remarked harlow so long as i haven't got to pay for it mine's a point of porter observed the man on the pail the point is proceeded easton when does the lecturer intend to explain to us what is the real cause of poverty here there cried harlow that's what i want to know too and what i should like to know is who is supposed to be given this ere lecture inquired the man on the pail why owen of course replied harlow well why don't you try to keep quiet for a few minutes and let him get on with it the next bugger what interrupts cried philpot rolling up his shirt sleeves and glaring threateningly around upon the meeting the next bugger what interrupts goes out through the bloody window at this everybody pretended to be very frightened and edged away as far as possible from philpot easton who was sitting next to him got up and crossed over to owen's vacant seat the man on the pail was the only one who did not seem nervous perhaps he felt safer because he was as usual surrounded by a moat poverty resumed the lecturer consists in a shortage of the necessaries of life or rather of the benefits of civilization you said that about a hundred times afore snarled crass i know i have and i have no doubt that i shall have to say it about five hundred times more before you understand what it means get on with the bloody lecture shouted the man on the pail never mind arguing the point well keep order can't you cried philpot fiercely and give the man a chance all these things are produced in the same way proceeded owen they are made from the raw materials by those who work aided by machinery when we inquire into the cause of the present shortage of these things the first question we should ask is are there not sufficient of the raw materials in existence to enable us to produce enough to satisfy the needs of all the answer to this question is there are undoubtedly more than sufficient of all the raw materials insufficiency of raw materials is therefore not the cause we must look in another direction the next question is are we short of labour is there not a sufficient number of people able and willing to work or is there not enough machinery the answer to these questions are there are plenty of people able and willing to work and there's plenty of machinery these things being so how comes this extraordinary result how is it that the benefits of civilization are not produced in sufficient quantity to satisfy the needs of all how is it that the majority of the people always have to go without most of the refinements comforts and pleasures of life and very often even without the bare necessaries of existence and plenty of materials plenty of labour plenty of machinery and nearly everybody going short of nearly everything the cause of this extraordinary state of affairs is that although we possess the means of producing more than abundance for all we also have an imbecile system of managing our affairs the present money system prevents us from doing the necessary work and consequently causes the majority of the population to go short of the things that can be made by work they suffer want in the midst of the means of producing abundance they remain idle because they are bound and fettered with a chain of gold
Let us examine the details of this insane, idiotic, imbecile system. Owen now asked Philpot to pass him a piece of charred wood from under the grate, and having obtained what he wanted, he drew upon the wall a quadrangular figure about four feet in length and one foot deep. The walls of the kitchen had not yet been cleaned off, so it did not matter about disfiguring them. This represents the whole of the adult population of the country. To find out the cause of the shortage in this country of the things that can be made by work, it is first necessary to find out how people spend their time. Now, this square represents the whole of the adult population of this country. There are many different classes of people, engaged in a great number of different occupations. Some of them are helping to produce the benefits of civilization, and some are not. All these people help to consume these things, but when we inquire into their occupations we shall find that although the majority are workers, only a comparatively small number are engaged in actually producing either the benefits of civilization or the necessaries of life. Order being once more restored, the lecturer turned again to the drawing on the wall and stretched out his hand, evidently with the intention of making some addition to it, but instead of doing so he paused irresolutely and, faltering, let his arm drop down again by his side. An absolute disconcerting silence reigned. His embarrassment and nervousness increased. He knew that they were unwilling to hear or talk or think about such subjects as the cause of poverty at all. They preferred to make fun of and ridicule them. He knew that they would refuse to try to see the meaning of what he wished to say, if it were at all difficult or obscure. How was he to put it to them that they would have to understand it, whether they wished to or not? It was almost impossible. It would be easy enough to convince them if they would only take a little trouble to try to understand, but he knew that they certainly would not worry themselves about such subjects as this. It was not as if it were some really important matter, such as a smutty story, a game of hooks and rings or shove halfpenny, something concerning football or cricket, horse racing, or the doings of some royal personage or aristocrat. The problem of the cause of poverty was only something that concerned their own and their children's future welfare, such an unimportant matter, being undeserving of any earnest attention, must be put before them so clearly and plainly that they would be compelled to understand it at a glance, and it was almost impossible to do it. Observing his hesitation, some of the men began to snigger. "'He seems to have got himself into a bit of a fog,' remarked Crass in a loud whisper to Slime, who laughed. The sound roused Owen, who resumed. All these people help to consume the things produced by labour. We will now divide them into separate classes. Those who help to produce, those who do nothing, those who do harm, and those who are engaged in unnecessary work. And, sneered Crass, those who are engaged in unnecessary talk. First we will separate those who not only do nothing, but do not even pretend to be of any use. People who would consider themselves disgraced if, by any chance, they did any useful work. This class includes tramps, beggars, the aristocracy, society people, great landowners, and generally all those possessed of hereditary wealth. As he spoke he drew a vertical line across one end of the oblong. These people do absolutely nothing except devour or enjoy the things produced by the labours of others. Our next division represents those who do work of a kind. Mental work, if you like to call it so. Work that benefits themselves and harms other people. 
employers, or rather exploiters of labour, thieves, swindlers, pickpockets, profit-seeking shareholders, burglars, bishops, financiers, capitalists, and those persons humorously called ministers of religion. If you remember that the word minister means servant, you will be able to see the joke. None of these people produce anything themselves, but by means of cunning and scheming they contrive between them to obtain possession of a very large portion of the things produced by the labour of others. Number three stands for those who work for wages or salaries, doing unnecessary work, that is, producing things or doing things which, though useful and necessary to the imbecile system, cannot be described as the necessaries of life or the benefits of civilization. This is the largest section of all. It comprises commercial travellers, canvassers, insurance agents, commission agents, the great number of shop assistants, workmen employed in the construction and adornment of business premises, people occupied with what they call business, which means being very busy without producing anything. Then there is a vast army of people engaged in designing, composing, painting or printing advertisements, things which are for the most part of no utility whatever. The object of most advertisements is merely to persuade people to buy from one firm rather than from another. If you want some butter, it doesn't matter whether you buy it from Brown or Jones or Robinson. End of chapter 25, part 2